So there was a husband and wife who were fighting. They need to go to the Valentine's Day dinner. That's all I'm saying. But anyway, a husband and wife, they were fighting about who should make the coffee in the morning. And the wife says, well, you wake up before I do, so you should make it. The husband says, well, you know, when we got married, you know, the kitchen's kind of your domain, and the coffee maker's kind of all part of the kitchen, so you probably need to be the one who makes the coffee for us. No, the wife says, it's actually in the Bible that it's your job to make coffee. You see where we're going with this? The husband says, prove it. So she opens up the Bible, and there it is, Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews. That's a corny joke, man. I didn't write it. I found it. I just thought I'd share it with you. It's not my work, all right? So don't hold it against me. Hebrews. All right. Welcome back to Mission 27. Why are we calling it Mission 27 in 2023? Because it's not about the year. It's about how many books there are in the New Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament, and it's our mission this year to walk through, intentionally read through together as a church family the entire New Testament. Testament. So obviously, we're not going line by line every Sunday morning. Otherwise, we'd be here six to eight hours every Sunday morning. I said I'm up for it. Some of you said you're not. So we're doing it this other way. We're Mission 27 on Sundays. We are introducing a book of the Bible. We're talking about the greater context of that book so that we can get an understanding of what we're about to dive into that week. During the week, what do we do? The most important thing is we read the book. Whatever the book is that we're, we're studying that week, we read the entire book, front to back. The longest one is two and a half hours. We already did one of the longest ones. That's Matthew, right? And um, some of them are 15, 20 minutes. A couple of them are two minutes long. We're going to stack a few because that's just a little too easy. Can't let you off that easy. But this is Mission 27. It's going to be our one-year survey through the New Testament. And I'm going to tell you what, time in God's Word does not return void. It will change you. It will cause you to come alive in Christ Jesus. And I am so thrilled to hear the testimonies that are, that are already coming across, that the people are, you're already sharing with me, just what this is already doing. We're two weeks into it, what it's already doing in your life. I'm going to say the best is yet to come. It's yet to come. So, why did we just do a joke on Hebrews? Because we're going to go into the book of Hebrews. You're thinking, well, but Pastor... I thought you were smarter than that. I thought it, that you knew it went Matthew and then Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the letter to the Romans. I mean, I thought you knew, knew, knew the progression of the New Testament. Yeah, 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 I, I, I do, I do. But remember how the Gospel of Matthew was written primarily to Jews and to Jewish believers? Well, there's two other books, two more books in the New Testament that were written primarily to Jewish believers. And those two books are the book of Hebrews and the book of James. And so we're going to follow up Matthew with a dive into Hebrews, and then we're going to go into James, because I want to make sure that we really get this connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's important that we understand this is one word from God, the Bible, His word, the word of the Lord to us. There's a prominent pastor today who just came out this last week in many ways. But one thing that he mentioned is that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. It's time that we unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. I mean, I'm telling you folks, that's dangerous stuff. That is dangerous stuff. It's unbiblical stuff. 
it's, it's even heretical in many ways. How do you unhitch any of God's word from any of his other words? This is the word of the Lord from beginning to end. And the link between all of it is Jesus. If you have a problem linking and understanding how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate, you're having an issue with Jesus. I'm telling you. He's the link from Genesis all the way through Revelation. It's his story. His story. And so we're going to continue with this focus and this understanding, making sure that we really grasp this connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament because it matters greatly. And when we understand this more, our perspective of God's word is going to continue to expand and grow. It's going to get you excited. Now, most people, they love Hebrews because of chapter 11. That's the faith chapter, the hall of faith. How many of you like that? The hall of faith, going, just going down. Abraham, all these, all these guys, some gals that just, I mean, lived amazing faith-filled lives. Examples of how to walk in faith, how to walk with the Lord. A lot of people love Hebrews because they love Jesus. And Hebrews presents Jesus in a fresh and unique perspective that's not found in any other book in the New Testament or the Bible, for that matter. Such a beautiful picture of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. I like Hebrews because it's fun to hear people try to pronounce the name Melchizedek. And so as people read it out loud, you know, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, you know, potato, potato, tomato, tomato, anyway. But a lot of people find Hebrews to be kind of a tough book to really understand. Sometimes Hebrews can be intimidating, often can be intimidating for believers. It can seem very intense, and I'm telling you what it is. It is intense. So what happens is a lot of believers kind of just avoid Hebrews other than chapter 11. You know, they, they, they just kind of tiptoe around Hebrews or tiptoe through Hebrews. Um, but we're not going to do that here. We're not going to do that at Evan Life Church because we're going to dive into this rich and important book. Point number one, the key to the book of Hebrews is the why. The key to the book of Hebrews is the why. Why was this book of Hebrews written? Why is it in the Bible? And when we find the answer to that, then the whole letter comes to life. It fits, it clicks, it makes sense when you know the why. Now we know this. The key to Hebrews isn't found in understanding who wrote it. After all, nobody really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Nobody knows. A lot of people say, oh, the Apostle Paul wrote it. But I used to be one of those. I used to think the Apostle Paul wrote it. And, and the more I, I read Hebrews, the more I, I just study and, and look into this, I, the, it doesn't sound like Paul in the end. It just doesn't. It's a whole other type of Greek. It's Koine, Koine Greek is the, is the primary form of Greek that's used in every other book in the New Testament. It's a common Greek. And I think it's really cool that the New Testament is written in common Greek. 
Because God wants his word to go out to all people, to, to, to us common folk. You know what I mean? It's not just for the, for the intellectuals. It's for us. It's for all the people. But, but Hebrews is written in a, in a much more refined kind of academic form of Greek, unlike the other letters that, that the Apostle Paul wrote. So we really don't know if it's the Apostle Paul or not. Martin Luther, the great reformer, the one who started the whole Protestant movement, he believed that it was Apollos who wrote the book of Hebrews. Others think it was Barnabas. Some even believe it was, it was Priscilla, a woman, who wrote it. Not many, but some believe that. And that's why the name of the writer isn't in there. But here's what I know. I can tell you this with confidence. We don't know the exact person that the Lord used to give us the book of Hebrews, but we know that God has given us the book of Hebrews. This is his word. This is his message to the church. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Amen. So the key to Hebrews isn't found in who wrote this particular letter. But we start to find the key as we begin to discover who this letter was written to. Now, we know it was written to Hebrews, it was written to, to Jews, but, but which Jews? Which Jews was this letter written to? Well, the main clue is found in the second to last sentence in the entire letter, and that's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 24. Hebrews 13 24 says this, those from Italy send you their greetings. In other words, the, there are believers that are with the writer of this letter, and they, they are from Italy. So this, this person, this guy is writing this letter to Hebrews somewhere, and there are these other brothers and sisters with this person writing this letter. And these people around him are from Italy. And it says that those people, these brothers and sisters around me that are from Italy, send you, who are receiving this letter, their greetings. They want to say hi. They want you to know they remember you. So what do we find? Sure sounds a lot like this letter being written to Jewish believers is being written to believers that are in Italy. And what's the biggest place in Italy? It was Rome. Rome, Italy. So this letter appears to be written to Jewish Christians in Rome. The book of Hebrews, a letter written to Jewish Christians in Rome. All right, you ready to narrow down the why some more? We're going to get there. This is all going to, I'm going to tell you what, you're going to have a good time reading the book of Hebrews this week. I'm serious. It's going to come alive. You're going to, you, it's, it's, a, it's a page turner is what I'm saying. You're going to love this, all right? So we're going to narrow in on the why. So it was written to Jewish believers in Rome. What was going on in Rome at the time that this letter was written? Well, Nero had come to power. You know, that soft, cuddly guy named Nero, right? Uh, megalomaniac who comes to power and, and he ends up burning down Rome and then blaming it on the Christians. And then in July of 64 AD, he begins this persecution, massive persecution of the Christians. 64 AD. 
When was this letter to the Hebrews written? Well, almost every theologian is going to tell you it was written right around 65 A.D., like six months within a year that Nero is persecuting, systematically going after Christians. So now we get some more insight into the why of this amazing book. You know, sometimes when you really want to understand what God is saying, you've got to be somewhat like a detective. And I was thinking about that this morning. So before I left, I went into our old homeschool um, supply area, and I found we still have this. It's this little magnifying glass. And I'm going to tell you what, beloved, sometimes you've got to get out the proverbial magnifying glass, and you've got to be a little bit of a detective to find out what God is saying. But I'm going to tell you that if you take the time to get the magnifying glass out, to be a detective, and to look, you will find what God is saying. I mean, sometimes we think that, that the Lord has is, is just said, okay, it, oh, I'll go back. Y'all know that, that, that show, um, what's, what's my favorite show? <laughs> Princess Bride, Princess Bride. Bam, it just came to me. Getting older, it takes a little longer sometimes. For the, it's an old hard drive. It's not, you know, solid state. You gotta, it's got to wind up. It's got to, anyway, go pull up. When I started, by the way, when I started programming um, at USA Insurance, old COBOL programming stuff, we would still have to do certain calls for data that would go to the data farm where they would have an arm that would go and spin and find the right reel, grab the reel, mount the reel, and boom, bring up the data. That's how old I am, but that's what kind of heavy lifting what programming used to really be about. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, I think we're studying Hebrews here. So Princess Bride, I think I might have just shot right past it. Oh, the Princess Bride. God doesn't do this to us. God doesn't just say, you know, uh, I'm your savior. You're saved. You're free. Now go figure it out on your own. Like the Princess Bride, go have fun storming the castle. And it's like, how do we do that? How, how do we take the castle? How do, we, how do we do this, right? God doesn't just throw us, you know, out there and say, good luck. Hope it all works out. He's given us this. And if we spend the time to look at this, we will find all we need for life and godliness. And so we do a little detective work. What is the Lord saying to us in this letter called Hebrews. Because I want to know. I don't want it to be so mysterious. I don't want it to be like, I don't know, what is this Melchizedek and all this kind of, what's he saying here? It's, oh, I want to know what God is saying to me. And God wants me to know what he's saying to me. Do you all believe that? So we got to be some kind of like Sherlock Holmes Christians here and, 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 and get into the Word. So this persecution started in 64 AD under Nero, and it was intense. It's not like the cancel culture that we're dealing with today. Oh, he made me feel bad. He threatened me. He's going to cancel, whatever. No, this was real, full-on, like, persecution, prison, and ultimately death. And we got this picture up here that I'm using as the, the backdrop, the Colosseum, right? They actually would send the Christians in the Colosseum. They'd have the lions and the tigers chase after them and eat them in front of people while everybody clapped and laughed. Oh, isn't that wonderful? 
This is what was beginning to happen in Rome when the writer of Hebrews penned this letter and sent it to the church. You see, the persecution was so intense that many Christians were looking for a way out. And you're like, I get it, right? They were looking for a way out. And the way out from persecution for the Jewish half of the church was to return to Judaism. That was their way out. See, Christianity was now public enemy number one. Christianity was illegal, punishable by death. But Judaism was still a sanctioned religion. It was safe to be a practicing Jew. And so many Jewish Christians were deciding to return to the synagogues to protect themselves and to protect their families from this persecution. But here's the deal. Returning to the synagogues required that they disown Jesus publicly. For them to be admitted back to the synagogue, they had to renounce Christ as the Messiah and as their Savior and as their Lord. So here's the key of understanding the book of Hebrews. Here's the why. Hebrews was written to convince these Jewish Christians to not abandon Christ. Don't go back. That's the title of this part one of the book of Hebrews. Don't go back. Don't go back. You understand that. That why, as you dive into the book of Hebrews this week and read it cover to cover, and you're going to see things start coming alive and making sense. Just, just that one point. But we're going to look at some other things here too that are going to help us really connect with what God is saying to us and has been saying to us ever since this letter was given to the church. So we go to point number two. It's the plea. Don't go back. We have the why, and now we have the plea. Don't go back. More insight into why Hebrews was written is found in Hebrews 13, verse 22. Check this out. Get them out. Come on. You ready? Next week, I want everybody to come with one of these magnifying glasses because <laughs> then I'll know who's really serious, all right? Check this out, verse, verse uh, 22 of Hebrews 13. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I've written to you quite briefly. Notice. The writer of Hebrews is telling us the whole purpose and what kind of letter he's writing. This isn't, this isn't a doctrinal dissertation that he's writing. And this isn't a, a book of Christology. In other words, the study of Christ. Although there's amazing doctrine in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is amazing study of Jesus himself painting beautiful picture and deep understanding of who Christ is. But that's not the purpose of why the writer was writing this letter to those Jewish believers in Rome. Hebrews is more simply a book of encouragement. It's a plea urging Jewish believers to stop abandoning Christ by returning to the synagogue. That's the purpose why this book was written. And the final argument that the writer of Hebrews makes is this. Hold, buckle up for this one. Here's the final argument he makes. It's actually found in Hebrews 6. 
And that is you will lose your salvation if you go back. And everybody just kind of shaking and moving in their seats right now a little bit. But check this out. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It is impossible. He's writing to Jewish believers who were, who were going back into Judaism, who were abandoning Christ, who were disowning Jesus as the Messiah in the midst of this persecution. And the writer of Hebrews says, Beloved, he's pleading with them. He's, he's encouraging, he's exhorting them. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of God, and the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who've fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. I told you this is an intense letter. No joke. So the writer of Hebrews writes this lengthy letter pleading with the Jewish brothers and sisters, don't go back. Don't go back. Don't do it. There's too much at stake. You need to understand what you're about to do. We probably need to preach maybe a little more from that perspective. Here in 2023, we've gotten away from that. We're kind of wishy-washy and whatever will go, will go. Whoever will be, will be, whatever. You know, it's just like how we start with Jesus matters greatly. By grace through faith. The work of Jesus alone, Christ alone, his work. How we start matters greatly. But how we live out our salvation and how we finish also matters greatly. And as we read God's word, we see that, not just in the book of Hebrews, but all over the place. Hebrews 12, beginning of verse 1 says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. I read a story this week about a guy named J.R. Hildebrand. He was an Indianapolis 500 uh, driver. So he's running the race, and he was winning the race. 23-year-old rookie then made this ultimate mistake, leading by almost four seconds, which is a long time in a race like this. I mean, it's a long time. He's on his last lap. He goes into the last turn, and he lost control. Took his eye off the prize. Ended up slamming into the wall. Over 250,000 people there watching the race, gasping as this guy, Dan Weldon, drove past him to claim the victory. Hildebrand started great. He was running a strong race. But he finished poorly, and he slammed into the wall. How we start matters, how we run matters, and how we finish matters. Are you tempted to go back? Now, I'm not talking about back to a, you know, Judaism in the synagogue. There may be some of, of you in here, maybe who, who were 
Started in Judaism. I'm looking around. Not seeing that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about going back to the world. I mean, all of us get tempted to some degree to go back. Are you tempted to go back? Back to the flesh, to the old you, to the life before Jesus, back to slavery, to sin, back to works, back to the world. Don't go back. And when I say don't go back, I'm not talking about, about choosing life apart from Jesus because it seems easier or acceptable or just helps us fit in a little bit. You know, that's, that's really all it is. That's, that's why most people give up faith. It's just easier to fit in with the world. Just easier. You know, as I think about this whole topic and I'm going to go there a little bit. You know, I I would imagine most of you, when you got saved, I mean, you were so excited. You were running after Jesus in every way. I mean, you were waking up in the morning looking for Jesus. Man, how can I I spend time with him? Man, I want to know more about him. I want to hear his voice. I'm so excited. I want to share him with others, man. And then we find ourselves... A year, two, three, five, ten down the road. And man, we're waking up in the morning and we're just going back to work. Going back to whatever the busyness of life is. Whatever the world tells us to do. Get busy. Get involved in all these things. Give your life to all of these temporal things that come and go and disappear. It's like we're going back. Yeah, we're not publicly standing up and and disowning Jesus, but we're allowing ourselves to be pulled right back into the old cares of this world, into what the world has programmed and said, this is how you live. This is what success looks like. This is the meaning of life. And we end up finding ourselves waking up in the morning, thinking on those things and chasing after those things. And we go back. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that's a capital D, that's the return of Christ's day approaching. So Hebrews was written to Christians who were choosing to go backwards. They were abandoning Jesus because following him was getting to be too difficult. Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. So let's go back. The why. Why? There were, there were Jewish believers that were, that were walking away from Christ and going back into Judaism, going back to the synagogue because life was getting hard. 
It was becoming harder and harder to follow Jesus, to be identified with him. And so we have this plea from the writer of Hebrews. He's like, I got to write my brothers and sisters in Rome, and I have to plead with them and encourage them, don't go back. Don't go back. And here's the argument that the writer of Hebrews makes, and this is point number three. The argument is Jesus is better. Simple yet profound argument. Jesus is better. Don't go AWOL. Don't run away. Jesus is better. Don't go back to the synagogue. Jesus is better. Some of your Bibles may use the term superior. He's better. He's superior. Look, if any of us walk away from life in Christ, if we walk away from Jesus, we're choosing the inferior. We're choosing less than. We're choosing that which cannot save, that which cannot satisfy. That's what we're choosing. And the writer of Hebrews lays it out plainly for these Jewish brothers and sisters who are going back to the synagogue. And he says things like this, Jesus, he's far better than the prophets. If you look in chapter 1, if you're reading chapters 1 through 3 even, he's far better than the prophets. And Jewish believers love their prophets. I love the prophets. But Jesus is the fulfillment of what the prophets prophesied. Jesus is far better. Don't go back to the prophets. He's the fulfillment. We've been talking about that for the past two weeks as we were in the Gospel of Matthew. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus, he's far better than the angels. Far better than the angels. Jesus, far better than the great deliverer Moses. You'll find that in chapter 3 of Hebrews. Jesus, far better than that powerful general Joshua. Far better. Don't go back. Don't go back. Jesus is here. He's already come. The fulfillment. He's here. You have him. Jesus, far better than the old covenant, than the old sacrifices. Read about that in chapters 7 through 10. Jesus, far better. In Christ, you have it better. Why would you want to go back? So let me simplify this for us a little bit. Maybe you have a Tesla. Maybe you have a Lexus. Maybe you have a F-150. That's what I got. Got an F-150. Why would you ever want to go? Why would you ever want to go back to that tricycle that you rode as a kid, right? I mean, is that what you're looking for? Okay, hey, you know, I, I really want to go back. I want to ride my trike to the job site. I mean, all the guys at the job site will think that's so cool. That'll be such a great way to get back and forth from work, right? No, why would you want to go back? You have the better in your life right now. You're not going to go back to riding the tricycle, right? Why would you go back? That'd be stupid. Think about this. I, I, I was just cutting some wood yesterday doing a project in my bathroom. And um, 
doing some miter cuts and everything. I, several years ago, I bought a compound miter saw. Power, right? Like the real deal, compound miter saw. And, um, and that thing is awesome. You know what I did after I, I bought that compound miter saw? I stopped using that old school saw and that plastic, you know, miter box that you got to do this and you're always worried about cutting your hand and it's never straightened. It. Oh, my goodness, right? I got the better. I got a compound miter saw and I was lighting it up yesterday, going at it. It was awesome. It was going on. How about you women? I bet most women in here use some sort of like an electric washer and dryer to do wash clothes, right? How about this? How about you go back to using a bucket and some water out on the back patio and scrubbing and washing your clothes that way? Would you want to go back? Why? You got the better. You got the better. Beloved, you have Jesus. You have Jesus. The new covenant. Grace. Freedom in Christ. Life. And that to the full. Why would you ever want to go back? Why would you ever want to go back to the law, to works, to a life void of his presence? To do that, you'd be leaving the better behind. This is the message of this letter to the Hebrews, to the Jewish believers in Rome. But I believe it's a letter that we all need to connect with on a regular basis because we're all prone to wander, as that great, great, great hymn says, prone to wander. Prone to be enticed to go back to the inferior. And going back means being cut off from the sun. Chapter 7 through 10 of Hebrews, we read an argument about how the substance is better than the shadows. The substance is better than the shadows. A shadow is just a representation of something. I might have a shadow of me. Well, there's a little bit of a shadow of me up here on the stage. Not much, but a little bit. I don't know if you can see that or not. But there's a little bit of shadow. And, you know, if you look at a shadow you know that someone exists. There's, that's, a, that's a shadow of a person. Someone exists, but you don't have a full view of who they are. You don't know exactly who they are. You, you don't see their facial expressions. You can go up and try to talk to a shadow, but a shadow isn't going to talk back to you. Some of you are looking at your spouse going, that would be nice. No, that was a joke. But anyway, you need to go to the Valentine's dinner is what you need to do. I think I need to, just even because that joke came to my mind, I probably should go. You can't interact with a shadow. A shadow isn't going to shake your hand. A shadow isn't going to embrace you. You can't do life with a shadow. But you can with the real deal. There's all kinds of types and shadows in the Old Testament. And they're beautiful and they're purposeful. They're to start to give us a glimpse of Jesus. They're to help us understand and start to put together a picture of Jesus. And they're there also to help us understand that when Jesus came, here he is, the fulfillment 
of all of these types and shadows and promises and words that have been spoken. The Old Testament is full of them, like the tabernacle, types and shadows of Jesus. The sacrifices, types and shadows of Jesus. I, I want to just talk about one, Isaac, son of Abraham. Isaac is actually a shadow of Jesus. How old do you think Isaac was when his dad Abraham took him up on Mount Moriah there and was going to sacrifice him to the Lord? How, what, what's your general impression of approximately how old he was? 12, 17, 16. Okay, I'm not listening to 37 because you're closer. You're two almost right, okay? Here's the deal. Almost any Jewish person will tell you, and you really should know this also. I'm sorry to, to point this out. But if you go right to the next chapter, right after this incident where, where Isaac was going to be sacrificed, we get to see, again, we get this out, and we get to see how, um, how old Sarah was when she died. And if you just do the math and you back it up a little bit, you realize right there in the Bible that Isaac was in his early 30s when his dad, Abraham, took him up to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice out of obedience to the Lord. He wasn't a teenager. He wasn't just a kid. He could have overpowered his dad. He could have said, no, dad, I'm the big man now. I'm stronger than you. You're, you're not going to do this. He, he could have done that. He could have resisted, but he didn't. Already a couple things. You see, early 30s. Jesus, early 30s. About to be sacrificed. Could have resisted Jesus. About to be sacrificed. He could have resisted, but not my will, but yours be done. A shadow of Jesus. And on that mountain that Isaac was being marched up to, to be sacrificed, it was Mount Moriah. It was the same mount where Jesus would be hung on a cross. Types, shadows, Pictures pointing us to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one sent from heaven to rescue us, to atone for our sins. Jesus. And instead of Isaac being sacrificed, what happened? God provided a ram. And this ram was caught in a thicket of thorns that were around his head. And God provided for us a lamb that would be slain, that would have thorns around his head. Atoning for the sins of the world. Love it. The Bible is so rich, so beautiful, so deep, so encouraging, so exciting. We get this out and we just start to, to look. What? What are you, what are you saying, God? What, what do you really have for me, Lord, in your word? And this is why the writer of Hebrews is pleading with the Jewish believers. Don't go back. Isaac had his day. There was a purpose, but the purpose of that incident on Mount Moriah was to point to Jesus, who would go to the cross for our sins. And we now have 
the better. We have Jesus far better than any type, than any shadow, than any substitute, than anything that this world could ever offer us. Far better. We have Jesus. Don't settle for anything less. Don't go back. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, of course, is focused on faith. Types and shadows no longer are necessary because they've been fulfilled in Christ. But one thing remains, and that's faith. Faith remains. And Hebrews gives us examples of faith that we're called to emulate. People of faith who didn't go backwards. This is going to be much of our focus next week as we continue in the book of Hebrews. So here's the assignment for this week. As you read the entire book of Hebrews, so that's first of all the assignment. You might think, well, there's going to be a part two, so I'm only going to read half. It's not that long. I read it in 45 minutes, okay? It's, it really isn't that long. I want you to read through the entire book of Hebrews this week. Beginning to end. And as you read, remember the why. Listen to the plea from the writer of Hebrews. Don't go back. Remember the why. Don't go back. Have that. Maybe even write that at the beginning of the entire letter in your Bible. I did this week. I wrote in quotes, don't go back. So I'm going to look at that every time I'm going to dive into the book of Hebrews from now on. Don't go back. And read it from that perspective, that, that why, from that, that plea that the writer of Hebrews is making. And as you read, I, I want you to underline or circle every place where you see the writer of Hebrews saying, Jesus is better. Circle that word better or superior. Look for an understanding and, and come into agreement of why Jesus is better. And then I want to encourage you to do this. Make it personal. Look at your life. Look at things that, that draw you, that pull you, that occupy your time and your thinking and your thoughts. And I want you to just remind yourself, maybe even speak it out loud. Yeah, Eric, use your name, not mine. That would be weird if you used my name. Yeah, Eric, but Jesus is better. Jesus is better. All right, if you believe that, stand up with me. Thank you, Lord. I want to invite the ministers to come forward. Every week we have brothers and sisters in the Lord. These are just, just our church family that are volunteering, and they're just here to pray with you and for you. Thank you all for doing that week in and week out. Just close our eyes for a moment here. I just want to say that if you don't know Jesus 
as the better. If, if you have never encountered Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never experienced, if you've never known freedom and forgiveness that comes in receiving what Christ has done for you, then I want to encourage you to do that today. To come to Christ. To come to the better. To come to the fulfillment. To come to the one who God sent from heaven to reconcile you unto Himself. And we're going to close here in a moment. And and the way I'd like you to do that is just to come to one of these brothers or sisters up front here and just let them know that, that you're here to come to Jesus. And they'll pray with you. They'll talk with you. They'll, they'll rejoice with you. And, and you will experience and know the better from this day forward for the rest of your lives and all eternity. Let's just raise our hands to the Lord if you're comfortable doing that. I typically do it just as an act of praise and an act of surrender to God. God, we do raise our hands just acknowledging that you are better. I mean, that word better almost doesn't sound enough. God, you're so good, so great, so perfect. You're all we need. You're everything. You are God and there is no other. We raise our hands to you right now, just an acknowledgement of that. You are God and there is no other. Lord, I ask that you would just move in each one of our lives. Holy Spirit, that you would stir up within us and, and quicken in our minds. God, if there's any area of our lives where we are allowing that area to become the better, God, that you would just convict us of that even right now, God. That we would, we would once again recognize that Jesus is the better. God, move in our lives, God. Continue to draw us unto you. Forgive us where we have looked back, where we've even walked back, where we've stepped back, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for second, third, fourth, fifth chances, God. Thank you for never leaving us or abandoning us. Thank you, God, that you're faithful always, Lord. God, thank you that when we humble ourselves before you, even if it's the 50th time, whatever it may be, God, you are so good that you lift us up. Thank you, God. Your goodness never ends. Never ends. We come before you this morning and say, you are our God and we are your people. Be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.